Listener discretion advised by the sound contains salty language. So if you don't like that, turn it down now. No, now, like right now. Okay. Let's start this fucking show. <laughs> Is it a spoiler if oh, I give away a- something that happened 25 years ago or, no, or 35 spo- years ago? Look, 30- if you don't want to listen, then just turn this down Look, for at some seconds. point, Yoda dies, okay? He was like 800 oh, years old. Yeah, like, no, that's don't- not giving anything away. That's your own fault if you haven't watched it. <laughs> it was a long time ago in a, a galaxy far, far away. Guess what? They all die. From the Coast Salish land of Seattle, we're By the Sound, your community-invested podcast. Each episode, we speak with the brightest minds from Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. We discuss art and pop culture, as well as local news and politics. I'm Sarah Mays, sitting this week with Aisha Hauser. On this week's show, I'll interview Seattle author and advocate Shannon Perez-Darby. We'll discuss discord in activist communities, patterns of domestic violence, creating accountability, the role of government and law, and developing restorative justice. Finally, Aisha and I will earn some next-level nerd merit badges, because we're talking about Star Wars on our podcast. This is By the Sound. Our guest today is Shannon Perez-Darby. She is an activist, advocate, and dancer. Shannon is also the author of numerous articles in anthologies such as The Revolution Starts at Home, Confronting Intimate Partner Violence in Activist Communities, Learning Good Consent, and Trans Kin, each of which will be linked to in our show notes. Today we'll be discussing themes she wrote about in the book Friendship as Social Justice Activism, Critical Solidarities in a Global Perspective, as well as other topics. We will be discussing domestic violence, sexual assault, and other sensitive topics, so our listeners' self-care is encouraged during this segment. I've known Shannon Perez-Darby to be one of the most thoughtful people in Seattle, and I am thrilled that she is joining us today. Shannon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So when I met you, we were both working at city council. You were a legislative aide. And by and large, I found that to be a positive environment. One of the least nourishing things I found about life at City Hall and city government in general was trying to keep track of all of the beefs that people had, trying to remember who I might not be able to say positive things about. And I also found that there was something of a social currency in people talking shit about other people. Like it was a way of getting closer to someone was that gossip. Um, And I suppose that's a very old human uh, evolutionary trait is is strengthening relationships through that kind of shittiness. But there, to be in an environment where so many people were ostensibly working towards the same goals and sharing vastly similar values, it was discouraging to feel like like I had to keep friendships secret. Did did you feel any of that like kind of pressure of that that web of social conflict? Yeah, that's really interesting um, to hear your thoughts and experiences about that. I found my way to city council um, through a path that many people do, which is sort of uh, nonprofit burnout and coming to the end of work in nonprofits and then finding myself in government, which I had never anticipated to do. I often describe myself as kind of an awkward government employee (laughs) because I don't trust the government. Um, And so it is awkward to 
work for them. And so coming from a nonprofit environment where I was working within my own communities, where there were a lot of social and emotional dynamics happening and very much um, like a closed system where people were gossiping and talking about each other and and just sort of like in the relationships were complex and in many directions. Um, I actually found it weirdly refreshing to work for city council because in some ways it was more simple than the work I was doing within queer and trans communities where my job was working within queer and trans communities and then my life was also existing in queer and trans communities. But that dynamic that you're describing of like the currency of relationships and the currency of secrets and gossip and information absolutely makes sense to me. And that and it's such a, as you were sort of indicating, like this age old tension, there's just really predictable things humans do in groups and in relationships to each other. And, you know, I tell the story a lot of when when I was working within the domestic violence field and doing at, at a nonprofit and doing a lot of trainings that it would it was so common like story after story where I would go and do a training I did a, a lot of them nationally where you'd go and you'd say like okay like who are you struggling with and time after time it would be the needle exchange was struggling with the one other needle exchange. The trans mm. program was struggling with the one other lead trans program. Yeah. That that was who they were in regular intention with. And so that just tells me something about like what humans do when we are in relationship with each other and like, and how do we deal with conflict and how do we just, how do we exist together in groups? And I definitely saw that reflected in, in the dynamics working at city council as well. Yeah, the uh, People's Front of Judea against the Judean People's Front. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> what was your entry point into working in queer uh, and trans activism? Um, you know, like many folks, I started doing kind of queer activism just as or just maybe like slightly before I had a developed queer identity. Mm -hmm. um, queer people were like – had were sort of always my people. Um, yeah. And I was socially kind of hanging out with uh, the queer people at my college and sort of simultaneously doing a lot of activism and organizing. That was in the early 2000s. And so it was a lot of anti-war organizing, but of lots of different varieties. And then um, I very quickly found myself doing anti-violence work centering around queer and trans communities. And so that has long been my home around like queer and trans community and organizing is in kind of the anti-violence violence and specifically domestic violence field. What, what does it mean to you to be in community? Yeah, I mean, I think being in community is having meaningful relationships um, with people in an ongoing and tr trusting way. Um, and so, you know, community is one of those words kind of like accountability that people use and sort of to the point where it means nothing. It's just you know, people use community as a filler for people, for humans. Um, and so uh, to be really intentional about what we mean. And so for me, I think about people that I have deep ongoing relationship with and and how to think about that at scale. So it's like, you know, all the people I organize with, I can't be in deep community with. There needs to be, you know, some people who like, we went, met once at a meeting two, two years ago, but like our issues overlap now and here we go. Mm. But, there, um, but for me, being in community is having an interdependent group of folks who are doing ongoing work with each other and doing ongoing um, kind of the work of life, of, um, of existing, of being, of um, talking about what's up for you, of helping each other, of mutual care, of um, – you know, of work, of thinking that that's sort of what being in community means. What have you seen in conflict within activist communities, queer communities, non-queer activist communities that is 
at least on the face of it, not community building, but community crumbling. I think one of the most urgent questions for activists and organizers is to figure out how to deal with conflict, is to figure out how to reconcile our relationships with conflict, um, to figure out how to reconcile our relationships with domestic and sexual violence, with the things that over and over and over again continue to tear down movements. Um, You know, I use this example a lot, even though it's not my organizing lineage or my history, but it is a place where it's been so archived and written about. And there's so many beautiful stories about this that many folks have shared. But one of the things you'll, you'll hear from a lot of Black women who were involved with the Black Panthers, we're talking not only about sort of the external threat of the um, of sort of the government and other groups coming for the Black Panthers and that they're like, you know, the world coming for them and their organizing, but also the internal tensions of divisions among themselves, of sexism, of other, of, of violence, um, and that both of those things were actually part of the deep impacts around the organizing that was happening was the tension of that internal force and that external force, and then who was disproportionately um, holding the impact of that which, as happens over and over again, were women of color. There were Black women, Black queer women, who were holding kind of both the external world coming for them and then also having their own people not have their back. And I have seen movement after movement after movement and organizing after organizing issue fall apart because people cannot get along with each other because there's some beef and then some tension. And then instead of being able to move through it and organize together and to move through our conflicts and our differences and to think about um, sort of strategy instead of sort of this is some of the failing of identity politics, which is where we organize around identities instead of around issues. And then when that fails us, we all hate each other. And then we splinter. And then you have like six splinter groups that actually aren't in conversation or relationship to each other instead of moving towards conflict, instead of actually figuring out how do we be in right relationship with each other and how do we actually like Um, You know, as Adrienne Marie Brown says, we move at the speed of trust. So if we don't trust each other, if we don't have those um, relationships, if we haven't been in conflict and then figured out how to move through conflict, how how are we going to make a new world? Like that's often a lot of the work organizers are doing is we're trying to make a new world and we don't even have some very basic interpersonal skill sets in place yet. What if though one feels and I I I hear what you're you're saying that sounds very healthy, you know, but we all have a certain number of spoons, if you've heard spoon theory (laughs) or something, um, you know, how much capacity do you have for uh, what you engage in? With communities changing and growing and aging and youth coming in, standards changing, how much time should one spend looking into the tent to make it a healthy group when there's barbarians outside. Like, this is something I I feel like we're, you know, dealing with Mm -hmm. a a lot is like when whole communities feel threatened by conservative Mm -hmm. uh, or right-wing or authoritarian Mm -hmm. forces and uh, ideologies. And where do you put that balance in, you know, say working in, in activism or government here in the city of Seattle, looking at, you know, outside threats versus inside dysfunction? Mm-hmm. I think the question of urgency is often a red herring that mm-hmm. I think um, one of the upsides of being both so new and but also 
being 15, 20 years into organizing is that I've been doing it enough and been open and curious that I keep watching the same patterns. Uh And so getting curious about those patterns. And one of the things that I see is that um, that question of urgency actually draws us away from the work we need to be doing instead of drawing us to it. Um, You know, I use this example a lot to think about uh, Naomi Klein's uh, book, Shock Doctrine, um, which the basic theory behind it is sort of looking at how crises are used to usher in conservative policies. So, you know, the biggest example of that is 9-11. And so how we ended up having, you know, eroding um, privacy, eroding kind of questions of like what the government does and doesn't get to monitor. There was a lot of really conservative policies that came in on the back end of saying, well, like people are dying, it's for safety. Safety. Yeah. Um, the P- Patriot Act. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that question of urgency is like, I call myself a pragmatist for the revolution, which is like, what's actually working? And what we are doing is not working. Like, we have been trying this question of saying, like, I'm going to do the most urgent and important thing, you know, come with me or, you know, or get left behind. And it's not, it's not producing the results we want. And so part of that is the curiosity of like, you know, what happened if you moved at the pace of the slowest person? Like, you know, the piece around like moving everybody forward. Um, that's a concept that uh, many folks in disability um, kind of justice world talk about and is written about in care work, which is, you know, what would happen if we went with the slowest person instead of the sort of like, it's urgent, we have to do it, we have to do it right now. I just... That's it's sort of an invitation to get curious about, you know, what would it take? And it might take a long time, like thinking about the multi-generational work. Like what would happen if we actually thought three generations ahead? And it may be the work we have to do with this generation may just be some much more pedestrian work than it feels like we actually want to do. And we actually need to be building foundations for the next generation. And we may not, we're probably not going to get there in just generation of where we want to head and actually thinking about that kind of scale of change instead of just being like, we have to go now. Like it's not working. And I, I, the reason that I think it's so important to be focusing on the relationship level is that I do believe that organizing is fractal. So that the smallest thing has to look like the biggest thing. So if you, if you and I can't be in right relationship to each other, like, why are we trying to make a world without war? Like, how are we going to, how are we going to not, like, if we can't even figure out how to like be in good relationship with each other, where is the magical skills that are going to allow countries to be in right relationship with each other? Like, we actually have to know how to do it. Um, and, you know, you recreate what you know. And so if we don't know how to do, how to be in right relationship, um, we're not, we don't know how to create it. We don't know how to scale it up if we can't even do it on the individual level. But, and, Sorry to go super deep mm-hmm. here. Um, isn't part of the function of law to maintain a healthy and civil society, even when we aren't in relationship to each other? I often think. I often think as uh, I hear people complain about um, uh, lawyers or even politicians, like. If not for lawyers and politicians, we would need a lot more doctors because there would be a lot more injured people walking around. That, that we we create these systems of law to um, mitigate the potential of of conflict. Does does that make sense? Yeah. And, um, 
I would argue that laws primary function are to maintain structural oppression, that laws are actually like they're not actually organized to, to um, about our relationships with each other. Actually, laws regularly impact our ability to be in good relationship to each other, to solve tensions and challenges that actually we could on a relationship level, that laws actually regularly hurt that instead of help that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that like, I think it's a fallacy to think that like people couldn't build the skills to do that together um, because people aren't walking around the world thinking, is this thing legal or illegal? That's actually not how humans work. Mm. Um, That laws often come in on the tail end and organize people's actions based on legal or illegal. But that, you know, I'm not walking down the street, you know, walking across the street thinking, oh, is this jaywalking? Is this legal or illegal in this town that I'm in? I'm thinking, oh, I have to get from here to here and there are no cars. (laughs) Um, It's the law that like kind of puts on top of of that a set of rules and um, that you know that vary greatly and so you know i don't think um i i don't think laws aren't tension are truly actually to help organize behavior i think they are to maintain systems of oppression so you've worked in lawmaking and you you said you um came to government uh as a skeptic Mm -hmm. did you leave as um i think about what about a year ago um, d- did you leave uh, with more faith in government or less? <laughs> I would say about the same. Yeah. It was about what I anticipated, which is that I saw my job on a legislative level to be harm reduction at best. And I think I did mm. that at best. Um, I think there was almost nothing I worked on with the exception of getting resources to people, um, which was less about the lawmaking part. and was more about the budgetary power. Of, yeah. Well, or even yeah. just like basic distribution <laughs> like mm-hmm. um that the the budgetary power of city council i think was is its most um potentially radical act and that um, laws are always going to be behind social movements and behind people. Laws are reactionary. Um, You know, case law and things are actually years and years and years behind where movements and skills are. And so I would say almost every piece of legislation I worked on was harm reduction at best. And regularly, I think, um, I think the task of harm reduction was not successful. Harm reduction of what government does or harm reduction of what capitalism does? Um, I think harm reduction and making um, and the what I believe the core task of law is, is like fundamentally racist, fundamentally set up to maintain um, systems of oppression. And so um, I think harm reduction and trying to decrease the kind of harm that the legal system and that uh, has on communities of color, has on queer and trans people, has on other marginalized communities. Um, So in my life experience, the oppressive force was coming from religion and choices being made by private individuals and a legal system that affirmed that. It was it was only when the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage that I looked around and realized that this community of people that I had thought of myself as being apart from and yet supporting – was getting a right which would allow me to be my full self. It was literally uh, an act of the highest court in the land that helped me realize my true identity. And we've seen since the Civil Rights Act of 1964, a gradual like growing. We might even see the ERA be passed now that the Virginia legislature is, is in Democratic hands. Did you see like the in in a meaningful way the city government um, affirming rights of people? No, 
I mean, I I would argue that a lot of the difference of that experience is about whiteness and it's about the like the highly racialized nature of the legal system and of how people navigate the legal system, I think is is actually truly hard to internalize and ha- truly hard to like make sense of. Because if we could truly understand the highly racialized nature of the law and of the legal system, I think the whole world would feel more urgency and more grief about the harms that have happened in those systems. And it just, it's actually intolerable for people to actually feel the full spectrum of that grief. And I think particularly folks who, you know, structurally benefit from those systems, like white folks, like straight folks, um, like men, like other folks who benefit from those systems. But because it is so highly racialized, I, I, I think that's part of probably what are the differences in, in mm-hmm. your experience around navigating that or seeing like the laws is something that was supposed to work for you and versus something that was like designed to harm you or to like limit your choices. Your essay inside of Friendship as Social Justice Activism, the title of the essay is I Get By With a Little Help From My Friends, Ending Domestic Violence One Friendship at a Time. One of the themes you look at in the beginning of this essay is what our expectations around romantic love and the role that romantic love is supposed to play in our life and how that works into the um, dynamics of domestic violence. Um, can, can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, you know, when I'm doing workshops or talking to groups of people about some of these ideas, I will often ask people, um, you know, raise your hand if you ever had a friend who got into a new relationship and then you didn't hear from them for three mm-hmm. to six months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, most people will raise their hand. Most people have had that experience. Um and one of the things is we don't know what's happening during that time where our friends fall off the map. We don't know if um, they're just like so in love and they're all Twitter pated and they've got all those like fun chemicals of new romance and of like getting to have sex with somebody new and they're actually setting up a healthy loving relationship that's equitable. Or we don't know if the if the groundwork for a pattern of power and control is being set up. Because, um, you know, one of the most unifying experiences of domestic violence or one of the kind of most commonly used dynamics is isolation. It's isolating people who are experiencing domestic violence. And one of the things that some of that new romance energy can often be pretty isolating mm-hmm. too, where it's just you you two against the world, or it's just like, you know, you spent the, the whole week in bed together ordering food. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, no, that's lovely. Um, and it is also isolating. It also mm-hmm. um, can have impacts on your connection with the rest of the world. And so what does it mean to, to um, be in a new relationship and not drop your friends and to value friendship and your connections with other people the ways that we are taught to value romantic connections? Um, because so often we are taught that like your romantic partner should be the center of your world and your life. And for some people that works. And for a lot of people, it really doesn't. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing, um, and what that particularly means for survivors of domestic violence is that that is a, um, a condition of the world that people who are setting up patterns and power control. So people who we call batterers can also be using that dynamic in order to manipulate survivors to say, yeah, it's you and me, it's you and me, and can kind of use these cultural norms to actually further abuse. When I'm talking to people who are older than I am and they use the word violence, uh, it's almost exclusively physical violence. When in your work and in what you talk about uh, in this book, 
Is violence limited to a physical variety? So the definition that I use for domestic violence is setting up and maintaining a pattern of power and control. And so the core harm of domestic violence is limited agency for the person who's surviving. So the way to think about that is by definition, a pattern has to have more than one thing. And so, so often we think about domestic violence as the moment violence happens. Mm -hmm. So the moment one person hits another or the moment someone's calling the police or the moment someone's screaming at each other, we call that domestic violence. And while that can be a part of the pattern of kind of of control and manipulation, it's actually only one piece. And that when we don't zoom out and we don't understand the the larger pattern, it actually harms survivors. It helps us not uh, get good information about questions like why do survivors stay? It helps us not understand abuse. And it and most importantly, it gets in the way of understanding what do we do. And so. It is just as important about all the moments you love that person and you feel connected and seen and they've met your family and your family really likes them as when you're staying up all night fighting. Both of those instances and moments are equally important in the pattern because Mm -hmm. it helps answer the question that like, you know, if you went on a first date with somebody and they punched you in the face, what would you do? (laughs) I'd call the cop. Well, I think I'd call the cops. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, one... um, I just heard a podcast about how people don't do what they think they would do. Um, I also heard the podcast. <laughs> but in general, people would do some, mm-hmm. you know, something of like, this is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Whatever is the action that's appropriate for that moment of this is unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. So what changes after a year and you have a partner and they punch you in the face? Mm-hmm. That's part of the thing is, is that the stakes get higher. The stakes and, get higher. Yeah. You love that person. You understand them. You have context to their behavior. Um, and that is part of the pattern. And so understanding the pattern, understanding, uh, you know, as we sometimes describe the movie instead of just the still frame or the, or the snapshot, mm-hmm. that that is actually the key to understanding domestic violence and understanding, you know, what do we do instead? And so the things that are often helpful for people to understand is um, the core harm of domestic violence is objectification, is the limiting of choices for mm-hmm. survivors and the, the limiting of the task of humanity, which is that we get to make choices and figure out who we want to be every day and how we want to navigate the world. And domestic violence severely limits some, a survivor's ability to do that task. And that violence is a tool of that objectification, but it's not actually the end game. Mm-hmm. The end game is objectification. And so many, many, many survivors will tell you that the physical violence is not necessarily the most impactful or memorable part of the abusive relationship. Most often people will have these sort of what are seemingly little moments where they felt small, where they felt like they didn't have choice, where they felt lost. That is like the the harm that, that felt deep and that stays with them. And mostly folks are like, yeah, the violence was not good. It was not like, it was not a good plan, but it, um, but it was actually the violence in combination with all these moments where I, I lost myself and I didn't get to be my full self and I didn't know what to do. And things got foggy and confusing that that's the harm, that objectification. And so um, that's how I, I define domestic violence. So that pattern can involve physical or sexual violence or other you know forms of violence, but it also cannot, it can involve, emotional manipulation and control and, you know, part of uh, setting up circumstances where a person doesn't get to have control over their life, that that is, that's the core harm that we're talking about. The way you describe that as a, a process, relationship dynamics, it makes sense then to me that since, you know, 
physical violence is the point at which, you know, one can call the cops, the point at which government can be involved <laughs> in, in the situation. Um, it makes sense to me then that uh, friendship and community would be, you know, a place that you look to for real social change to happen. But what for for those of us that view community as something that is patriarchal uh, or is is propping up the authority of the abuser. I'm thinking of religious communities, particularly uh, right-wing Christian communities, where one doesn't know where to turn because, say, in the case of a heterosexual relationship, the man is backed up with the divine authority to be enacting this system of violence. I think it's really important when we're talking about domestic violence and we're talking about survivors of domestic violence to not be Pollyannish about what we mean by community and connection. Yeah. Because the reality is, is that most people do not have deep, loving communities. Most people are isolated and lonely. Like most people have one to two people maybe who mm. they can rely on. Um, and that's part of getting really realistic about where we actually are. And so there's lots of flowery ideas about community and connection. Yeah. And um, most people, that is not their experience. Um, that community is a place where they have been loved and cared for. And mm -hmm. that is part of a deep healing we have to do. And also just to be really real that for many survivors, when I was a domestic violence advocate, that their most intimate safe relationship was with their barista like that that was the person they talked to the most that was like not harmful to them and it's um it's a pretty hard road if your most close connection is your barista and there's some ways yeah. where that's great because like there's actually a human who like you have hu like human connection is a need it's a basic need of, of humans we do not do well when we do not have connections with other humans for better or worse um but that is part of understanding the kind of antidote to um to that pattern of power and control is self-determination and safety. Like we don't want to be Pollyannish about safety. Safety matters. It's just, um, it just matters just after self-determination. And so part of that repair to objectification is supporting survivors and making choices. Um, and sometimes those choices might be between two bad things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those choices are between like a not great thing and another slightly less not great thing. Um, and to not just pretend that people have abundant, awesome, wonderful choices. And that that kind of task of rebuilding self-determination is the task. And that may be that like you have one baby friendship that's just barely growing that you is someone you have brunch with every couple of months. Like that's just realistic about where a lot of people are in, in their relationship to community and to like and to connections with others. You've been involved in a video series called Building Accountable Communities. Yeah. Is that part of this domestic violence focus or is it about other types of, you know, less high stakes accountability? Yeah. So I would say the work of what accountability means, how do we actualize that in our lives, in our relationships, in our communities is become some of the core of my work over the last 10 to 15 years. And that the answer to that question really came out of like, you know, how do we make a world that is better than this one? And how do we make a world that is not only free of domestic violence, but where everyone gets to have loving and equitable relationships? Because I don't only want a world that just doesn't have violence in it. I also want a world where people are thriving and well and have their needs met and are, are well connected with others and in good relationship. And so what 
my kind of lineage with those questions are the organization that I worked with that worked with queer and trans survivors of domestic violence. They uh, have an all gender support group for survivors of domestic violence that's been running for decades. And one of the rounds of that support group, they asked folks, what do you wish you had known? What did you wish for you were in this abusive relationship that you what did you need? And out of that kind of conversation came a curriculum for a relationship skills class to be that then ended up being open to everybody. Because, you know, turns out we all need support around relationship skills. And so, you know, that curriculum changed and morphed over the years. But one of the core components was about accountability. Because it turns out most of us have a wacky relationship with accountability. Mm. Most of us think that accountability is something that happens to bad people. Accountability is something that like, you know, murders and rapists should be accountable. But the reality is, is accountability is a human skill that we all need to be in right relationship. That, you know, my definition of accountability is um, being responsible for your choices and the consequences of those choices. And that's a task all of us need to do. Mm-hmm. And it's actually what helps us to be in good relationship, which is just like understanding our own pattern that if I do something that is outside my values and outside of who I want to be, that I can recognize it and then I can have mechanisms to make it right, to attend to the impact and to have change behavior. And that is part of when we all are better at the skill of accountability, it actually makes it harder for people to batter. Because one of the core kind of things you see in people who are setting up patterns of power and control, who people who are violent with others in around domestic and sexual violence is that they're sort of like allergic to accountability. They will like, they won't take responsibility for anything. Everything else is someone else's fault. So if we all get better at taking responsibility for our stuff, it actually changes the conditions that allow domestic and sexual violence to happen. That's why it's such an urgent question. You know, but when I think about the kind of person uh, with that behavior and not taking accountability, the most famous example at the moment is the current occupant of the White House. And he is, it would seem... A psychopath. And and it would seem to me psychopaths aren't going to be attracted to any training around accountability and situate themselves in that. It can, can accountability be brought to people who, you know, maybe have uh, mental illness that prevents any self-seeking of accountability? Domestic and sexual violence are painfully common. Mm-hmm. And they are painfully common because many people are perpetrating them. Mm-hmm. It's and so it can be really easy to understand to try to understand the harm of domestic sexual violence through like, you know, psychopaths are doing that, monster people doing mm-hmm. that, you know, this sort of person has sort of become like a dehumanized figure of our president has done that, but that the reality is is that like our brothers are like our neighbors, our mothers are like our people we're actually in daily relationship to are mostly who is being violent. Um, and so everybody knows somebody who has been abusive and because, you know, people who do harm are humans. They're not monsters. They're people who live in our communities. Sometimes they're us. And so when we make people who do harm sort of monster people who are far away, who are psychopaths, who are mentally ill, like it does not track that most people and particularly most women have experienced 
domestic and or sexual violence throughout the course of their lives. Mm -hmm. That's not because there's like a bunch of psychopaths running around harming us all. Um, That's because we actually have a culture that actually just normalizes domestic and sexual violence. And so that's why we have to bring it down to the level of like, you know, what's, what do we, how can we intervene when something's just kind of bad instead of when someone's just like fleeing for their lives? There's actually a ton we can do when it's just like a little wacky. And that that's the place where the kind of, where these accountability skills and where the like kind of the change behavior can actually make a change world. Mm-hmm. So in social justice communities, there's a lot of talk of restorative justice on, you know, alternatives to incarceration. In a general sense, is that what you would encourage for perpetrators of domestic violence or sexual abuse, which is often, you know, wrapped up in that? Yeah, most sexual violence happens in the context of relationships. Right. So whether it's not that the is a stranger on the yeah. street, yeah. And that's part of the story. It really works for us as a story mm. if like uh, strangers are jumping out of the bushes. And while that does happen, um, while there are like uh, stranger assaults, yeah. the most sexual violence that happens is relational. Yeah. Um, and whether that's relational, like in a romantic relationship, or that's like, you know, a neighbor, an uncle, uh, you know, but they're people we know. Yeah. Um, and so that is part of the trying to think about what do we then what do we do about that and some of that is cultural change but some of that is is doing the work of accountability that like people really like to jump to kind of what do we how do we scale up to these big big questions you know i think that supporting people who do harm and accountability is the salve is the path forward and rarely does slash pretty much never. It's a, it's a fluke when people who are incarcerated actually have meaningful supports to be accountable. Yeah. Um, you actually have to, you actually have to be in, re- in resistance to the institution in order to do that work. So some of the through lines about that are people who uh, found a religious or spiritual practice, people who got sober, people who were doing 12 step work, who kind of did a reorganization of themselves. And in the course of that reorganization while being incarcerated did healing work and accountability work. But those are, Rare stories regularly repeated. Um, and the norm is that the there are varying statistics, but many of them saying in upwards of 80% of women who are incarcerated have experienced domestic and or sexual violence. Yeah. Um, and that actually domestic or sexual violence is in combination was one of the reasons they are incarcerated. And so what that's telling me is that it's not our dream that like people who do harm, people who are raping people, people who are battering people are incarcerated and being accountable, that that is, that is sort of a myth that's actually uh, getting in the way of us seeing the reality of what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Are there success stories of, no, uh, I mean, I, and I don't, I don't want to suggest at all that uh, incarceration is, or, you know, that there is rehabilitation mm-hmm. taking place. I, I think that is the exception, not the rule. Are there success stories of people, chronic abusers, not being so chronic? Yeah. um, So a lineage that I come from is one of transformative justice. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are many definitions of transformative justice. But the one I use is, you know, addressing harm outside the criminal legal system. And so using our uh, community tools and relationships with each other to navigate harm and pass forward for folks, particularly around accountability. And... It is a very common question that there's a lot of kind of urban myths of transformative justice. When I first started kind of 
having these conversations with people. Um, everybody knew but someone who knew someone who knew someone who had done like a successful community accountability process. And this in my first exploration, this was 10 years ago. And since then, I have participated in a number of different combinations of kind of transformative justice or kind of uh, community accountability kind of engagements. And I think we have to really get clear about what success means to us. Mm. It's really, really common that what happens is that everyone comes together with the best of intention. Yeah. Um, you know, friends of the people who did harm, friends of survivor, they try to come together. And then the work actually is really hard and it takes a really long time. And then by the end, everyone's burnt out, kind of pissed off at each other and feeling like in some ways like new trauma about like having me having genuinely tried to engage in a process that they did not feel was successful. They I did can not imagine. Yeah. yeah. It sounds. And so we, we <laughs> have to kind of, exactly. Yeah. And, and, the resource and the energy and the longevity that that takes rarely are communities resource to be able to do that. And so we have to right size what success means. Success might mean the harm reduction. Successful might mean that the survivor has the resources that they need to like move. Like that might be our success. Like we just actually have to get real about where we are. It's sort of like any, uh, you know, if you you think about kind of organizing or other kinds of scales, it's a needs assessment. Like a needs assessment is just like understanding where you are right now and what's needed. Yeah. Like we need a needs assessment around, you know, domestic and sexual violence and transformative justice because we have a lot of ideas about what it is that does not track to the lived experience. And so I will say there are people I'm in relationship and community with who have done the harm of domestic and sexual violence, who I have seen do d- deep work and who have not done that harm anymore and are working hard to be accountable. For, for those behaviors. Mm-hmm. And that's often work that's happened literally over decades. Like it's long work. And so I think it's it's a little co- complicated to, under, to think about like what is a success. But it's also, you know, one of the myths about domestic violence is that survivors don't love their partners, their abusive partners. Survivors absolutely love their abusive partners. Like love is not the question. Yeah. Um, and so, so often you'll hear survivors ask the question of like, but have you ever seen someone change? Like they want to, they want so badly to stay in the relationship, like to figure out any way to make it work where they can be safe and have their sense of personhood. And I will say I have never seen that happen while people stay in relationship with each other. The only times I have seen accountability are when people are no longer in relationship with each other. And the person who's done harm has done that work outside of that relationship has done that work over long periods of time, well supported by other folks. In this essay, I get by with a little help from my friends. Um, It includes a 10-step guide to supporting survivors while not losing yourself. It is excellent advice, I think. For anyone who is wanting to help a friend in an abusive relationship, whether it's reached a point of violence or not, or perhaps is struggling to figure out what's going on in their own relationship, I'd recommend, again, uh, Friendship as Social Justice Activism, Critical Solidarities in a Global Perspective. I got my copy at Third Place Books. It is also at Elliott Bay Bookstore and uh, many other great bookstores. The video series, Building Accountable Communities, I'm very interested in. That is online. And we will include that in our show notes. And Shannon, these are really hard <laughs> topics to talk about. It, it It's the emotional labor that you put into this work is incredible. I want to recognize that and thank you for that. 
Thank you for talking about all these things today, and thank you for continuing to do your work both in government and in your own projects. Shannon Perez-Darby, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for making the space to, to have the conversation. Sarah. Chelsea. When you say that By the Sound is a community-invested podcast... What does that mean for our listeners? Ah, glad you asked. It means that in addition to hearing our conversations about local issues and interviews with our most interesting Seattle area neighbors, fans of the show can join our listener community online by supporting the podcast on Patreon. Doing so will unlock access to our private Facebook group. What are we posting in the Facebook group? (laughs) Well, in addition to exclusive previews about what we'll be discussing on the show, we offer a curated stream of the best and most provocative local news stories each day. That's dope. How much will it cost to join? Our online community membership is available to all patrons starting at $5 per month. How else can fans of the show invest in this community? Our supporters on Patreon who contribute $10 or more per month will receive exclusive invitations to buy the sound meetups at Seattle area coffee shops, bars, and parks where they could meet by the sound co-host, guests, and other local fans of the show. Sweet. Where should listeners go to donate? They can visit bythesound.net and click on the donate button. That's bythesound.net. Or go directly to patreon.com slash bythesound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bythesound. This is a special alert for those listeners who haven't seen the latest Star Wars content. The following discussion contains more spoilers than a newly vacated Wampa Cave on the ice planet of Hoth. Episode 9 and Mandalorian spoilers will commence in about 10 minutes, so unless you've been frozen in carbonite, you have plenty of time to adjust your transmitter before we ruin your precious virginal Star Wars experience. Forever. Chelsea Alvarez is on assignment and won't be joining us today, but that's okay because uh, for some reason she isn't a Star Wars fan. Oh, that's true. So you and I are going to talk about Star Wars. That's right. We're going to talk about Star Wars and what is your uh, life experience? Before we get to the most recent movie, what is your lifetime experience? Because I think this is something that becomes a part of each viewer yeah. So I grew up uh, in the eight, obviously in the eighties. Um, and so I've seen every single one and I never, I loved them and didn't, and I, my, I, I never reached like hyper analysis of each of them. Like I was not bothered by Jar Jar Binks. Like, yeah, I thought it was a little goofy, but it didn't like, I didn't want to murder someone because Jar Jar Binks was a thing. Um, but I remember loving Princess Leia, a strong female character and growing up in a Muslim home that was patriarchal and a faith that, you know, women were supposedly meant to be protected, which we know is patriarchal misogynist bullshit. And here's fucking Princess Leia, like, fuck you, I'm going to beat you. So I grew up watching all of them and loving them and appreciating them. And and I love fantasy. I've always loved fantasy. I saw them as, as a kid. I think the one time we rented this huge machine, I think it was a Betamax. And along with the Betamax rental came uh, the first Star Wars movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think we did that. Well, not the beta, but we may, I don't remember now. No, because we, we didn't watch it till VHS came out. 
But mm. yeah. Oh, baby. Yeah, the, the children won't know. You, we, we, no idea. They're going to have to Google this. It might not even be on Google. I mean, <laughs> it was like you'd, you'd rent this thing that was like the size of a big briefcase, and um, you'd take it home and eventually hook it up to your TV. And that's how you were able to watch the movie that you rented from the video store. And the first Halloween costume that I remember. Uh, I was an Ewok. Aww. <laughs> it's adorbs. I don't know why I never, I don't think I was even Leia ever. I might not have been allowed. So growing up, I just loved every single one. I've really not come out of one that I hated with a passion, I don't think. I mean, I guess one and two, maybe. Is that the one with um, Natalie Portman? Was that one? <laughs> I, I, I think she was in the first three. The fr- okay, yeah, 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 the first three. And so, I mean, they they weren't, I feel like, the you know the Luke what were the episodes three four and five were the originals uh, for four, me four five and six four five and mm-hmm. six and I love them and I'm not hostile to one two and three I mean I just don't like them as much but it may be which it may be the nostalgia part of it so I couldn't wait to see this one when when episode one came out I was so grateful for the new content. I was just so excited to be seeing Star Wars-y things because I thought it was never going to happen. Yeah. Something I appreciate about it took off in earnest with episode one in, I guess it was 1998, 1999, is the idea of people containing both the good side and the bad side. And they'd already introduced the notion with Darth Vader but with making Anakin Skywalker a full-time good guy, mm-hmm. at least for the first episode and a half, um, if not more, I think it was really great for my kids to be introduced to that sort of moral complexity. I felt like my childhood understanding of good and bad was very manichaean um, had had that, very much had that duality that there's evildoers and good people. There's good people and bad people. There's like this whole Cold War notion of the evil empire and the city on the hill. Mm. And it's very binary. Yeah, I, I was always deeply indoctrinated in that binary, and so it's been super helpful for me over my life to see the, all the, the shades of gray and the movement and the complexity to eventually come to the point of thinking, you know, I, I, I really want to believe there aren't bad people. There's just people having bad days. And I don't know if that can survive the test of the psychopath. <laughs> I, used to, I used to want to think there were no bad people, but this current administration's testing Every universalist bone in my body where I believe that no one is not worthy of love and trying to hold on to it, Sarah. It's very hard because there are people doing some evil fucking shit on purpose. Somebody sat in a room and said, let's separate families and cage children. And other people went along with that. And it's hard for me to reconcile that those people who are stripping others of their humanity also are human and deserve love. That's very hard for me or, or that they're not bad. And I'm not saying they are. I'm saying that that's been a serious spiritual crisis for me. The thing I want to say about Jar Jar Binks that was upsetting that I read was the character who played him, and I'm blanking on his name right now. He's a black man. 
almost committed suicide because of the social media like harassment he got because of Jar Jar Binks. And I'm like, what? Cause of his guilty conscience. Cause it's not like anyone would recognize him. No, they were just, it's kind of like what happened to Kelly Marie Tran, who had to delete her Twitter account because fans were pissed that she was, had a prominent role in the last, was it the last Jedi? And it was just bizarre. I mean, yeah, there's definitely kind of bullshit elements to how the uh, Jar Jar was portrayed. However, the actor, it's not, I mean, there there are fans that went after him as if he was personally responsible for a character they didn't like. And that's what happened with Kelly Marie Tran as well. And that, that I think is part of the, what is it? The bro culture of, yeah. I'm going to fucking harass the shit out of you because I don't like something in life. Like that is bizarre, but Back to Star Wars. That was well, it, it, it's a very real thing, and that's something I, um, as a child actor, would run into, um, you know, with, like, classmates, people who I, I don't know how much was intentional obtuseness or if it was a legit struggle for them to understand, but there would be classmates who couldn't understand or wouldn't understand that the character... I was playing had a difference from the person that I was. And for me, that was like one of the entry points um, to a lifetime of frustration um, dealing with, uh, you know, folks who struggle to hold two thoughts in their head at the same time, Mm. Uh, two conflicting ideas. I don't know. Is that a legit struggle or are people just being assholes? I think people are just being assholes because they don't, again, this is part of, I think, to for me, a result of this bullshit Puritan Calvinist, what we've, we being the United States has perpetuated. It's just like this inability to process feelings. And, and so people get angry or... Don't and so they're they're angry at a character, right? You happen to play that character, and they there there's something I'm om, almost primal about the inability or even the lack of desire to even separate what that means, and therefore they become abusive. And it happened. I mean, it, I watch it and I'm like, God, what the actual fuck? Like, and I I think it's a combination of asshole and obtuse asshole. So what did you think of Star Wars? Well, okay, on the whole. I love the series, even the movies that aren't my favorite. But, you know, there's nine movies. Of course, they're not all going to be great. My favorite of all time is The Empire Strikes Back. Yes. I think the second best is Episode 7, the name of which I can't even remember right now. But that's the one where Rey made her debut scavenging an Imperial Destroyer. Episode 8 was actually quite good. Rewatched it just before seeing Episode 9. Watched it with my boys again. And uh, it had a great humor. And it was a great ride to a lot of um, fascinating locales and brought on a lot of, a lot of that wonder and mystery and uh, aesthetic that is so fun in Star Wars. Episode 9 was good. It was, uh, I was thrilled to show up at the theater and somehow magically in almost the year 2020 arrive at episode nine, something I never thought I would 
live to see or that would be made. And boom, there it was. And I want to say something critical, but I don't know if it's fair. Mm. That So finales are tough and you don't know how fans are, if you're making a finale, you don't know how fans are going to react to what you include and what you don't include, what you a- answer and what you don't answer. Episode 9 provided a lot of what uh, my 14-year-old calls fan service, um, which I would call being serviceable, which I, I would call uh, checking boxes. And it, it's like it had this sense that they were checking off boxes with, you know, including and saying goodbye to several characters that we had already said goodbye to. There were storylines and story arcs and characters that had already been wrapped up, and so I didn't always feel like my time as a moviegoer was being fully respected by sentimental box-checking. But maybe that's just me being a grumpy old... I think so. I think they did do that. And for me, I appreciated it. I actually, I had that moment of, I know exactly what you're talking about when Han Solo showed up as like a ghost to talk to Kylo Ren. And I'm like, really though? But, but then when I thought about it, he killed him. So it's like, again, we're just going to have to do a disclaimer for all the spoilers. He's not a Jedi though. Sorry. I don't no, want to go no, into no, that no, kind no, of geek. No, 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 that's true. He's it, not. Yeah. But that was when I had a moment of, oh, I mean, I didn't use the terminology of checking boxes, but that's exactly why I said, oh, they're just wanting to make sure everyone like land. I mean, they were thrilled, but but because again, like in my heart is episode four and five and six, that all these characters, I was like thrilled to see it, and I kind of just went with it. So you're not, I think you're absolutely not wrong. I think it is, a, and your son's not wrong. It is absolutely checking the boxes, and for me, it was perfect. And <laughs> maybe where I am emotionally, I need boxes checked like that. <laughs> I think be- because they were trying so hard to wrap things up, it ended up being not quite as entertaining for me as episode eight, which had the open-ended quality of being Mm. able to wrap things up later. So the whole thing was more of a... uh, I cried through Rise of Skywalker. I was not prepared. Um, I forgot that there was footage of uh, Carrie Fisher. So when she came on, I, I tears. I'm like, holy shit. Then when she died, I'm like, oh! You know, every time I saw another character that was in episode four, Luke Skywalker, Lando Calrissian, um, Leia, Han Solo. I was just, I just cried and cried and it was a beautiful cathartic cry. So um, what'd you think of the kiss? I hadn't thought about it. Um, I loved it. uh, I just want to name, I love that romantic shit. I'm totally into it. And I also am crushing on Adam Driver, so <laughs> I was living vicariously through Ray. <laughs> well, you know, I am a romantic, but for me, that does not include incest. And having spent so much time, like, entertaining this idea, uh, this this um, Luke and Leia idea that they were perhaps siblings, um, I hadn't, like, emotionally let go of that possibility, so it felt sort of like a a, a kiss and sibling kind of thing. Um, So I didn't feel it in a romantic way. It had more of a a wah kind of feel to it. Like, but you know, that's my own hang up. That's me not catching up fully. No, they're not. This is just, you know, I'd spent several years kind of thinking of them as maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, I love their tension though. That was the one 
story thread that I think their chemistry, their fighting, their back and forth, their struggle. I loved. So I actually, it made me cry more. I went after the kiss and what happened. Mm -hmm. I was like, ah, it was, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think I just needed a really cathartic. It was a super sentimental movie. It's, it, it it could definitely be a tear jerker if your, your tears jerk easily. Are you telling me you didn't cry? I didn't, but you know, I don't, I don't, cry often uh it's unfortunately i am always grateful when i do cry i respect crying i value crying i think we need to make more space in our culture for crying because it's healthy and cathartic and anyway the thing that bothered me was the betrayal of rose she was literally Tico. quite marginalized kelly marie tran is the is the actress because there was a weird outcry from star wars fans in quotes mostly male who just harassed her uh she had to delete her twitter account because they were pissed at her character and i don't know if it was a, a mixture of racism misogyny what have you and and then what they should have what jj abrams and george lucas should have done in the rise of skywalker is say fuck you she is a central character she was the one who mm-hmm. you know inspired finn to not give up and fuck that like i was that was a one huge disappointment was how they marginalized her character kelly marie tran that was really um bizarre and unnecessary and so and i want to name my friend leslie mack posted that um Ray was a representation of Elizabeth Warren, and I agree. <laughs> That's pretty deep. Um, I see that. And first of all, about Rose, she was a uh, prominent character in The Last Jedi, which is episode eight. I w- I'm surprised people had any problems with her. I, I didn't know that there was any angst about her um, until the new movie came out and her character was marginalized. And then there's kind of a people um, are upset about that naturally. I mean, it's not surprising that a young Asian woman would be the target of ridicule from the type of culture that is most invested in these movies. But hopefully, Great characters like Rose and Ray will help a lot more folks that aren't the traditional audience uh, get involved. And um, something I liked about Ray from the start when she came on in episode seven is how she was in a lot of ways the the badass hero Jedi I always wanted to see. In part because she's at the same time not a princess. Mm. Okay, no shade on princesses like. I try to be a princess. Uh, you know, Ray is a, she just seems so normal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, but they find the magic in uh, that basic humanity, if we can call them humans in Star Wars. Well, Ray, what I love about the Star Wars franchise and all of them is the idea of resistance and working together. What 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 the th- common thread is, even though there are heroes we can point out, there's still those heroes, whether they are Han Solo or even Chewbacca or uh, Finn or Rey, ha- depend on the interdependent web, right? So that's another Unitarian Universalist principle is we are part of an interdependent web of life. And Star Wars 
manifests that interdependent web and, and you know and then we have the language of the resistance and the rebels and who work together that are regular beings who aren't you know when you look at the um the stormtroopers they're all dressed the same they're all in formation and they're all uh you know disciplined and and they're it, they're also boring as fuck. Uh, yeah. So whereas we look at the resistance and these rebels that are just, um, it, it's sweet. There's something about it. That's, that was the other reason I think I was bawling is just, we need hope. Uh, I think I need hope. I will speak for myself. I need hope. I need optimism. I'd like to think I'm an optimist. And then last night I had this nightmare. I'm, I'm thinking of what's happening in Australia of literally my house burning and not knowing what to do. Like, being like it's as if we were in Australia um so in my nightmare and so I woke up and I'm like I don't want to live in constant outrage or in constant fear I'd like to not be that person because it's not useful and I think Star Wars when I was there was like okay I don't have to live in constant fear we can um work together and that's what I feel hopeful about this podcast working with you and connecting with folks around the city and around the country actually around the world um, to, to, to remind ourselves that we're connected and there are people who are part of the resistance to violent extractive capitalism and the, just what feels like off the rails insanity that's happening. So I loved Star Wars. I don't love that they had Lupita Nyong'o and you can't tell it's her. I'm like, how the fuck do you hire Lupita Nyong'o? And she's one of the characters that she's CGI'd completely. So you have no idea it's her. She was... Um, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm bad with my actors and actresses. So I don't know what you're talking about at all. This is Lupita. Okay, I do not recognize her from the movie. No, I'm because you wouldn't that, know it was her. Well, she, who... She played the, she in, in episode eight was the bar owner. She's this small person with the, almost like a basketball looking head with the. Um, oh, with the goggles? Yes. Oh, she's, okay. That's, that's one of my Lu- favorite characters. I yeah, thought, I didn't Lupita. know that was an actress at all. I thought that was an entirely. One of the most beautiful women in the world huh. <laughs> is in that CGI. I'll be damned. I know. I thought she was entirely CGI. Nope. That's Lupita. I don't even know how they do this anymore. I don't. I don't know. Oh no! How it's, the... it's sorcery. It's the fucking dark <laughs> arts, man. It is, <laughs> my friend. It is. It is sorcery. I don't understand it. It's like flying. When I get in a plane, I don't understand how the plane works. I just know that magic will get me where well, I need to go. <laughs> I've heard even par- plane engineers um, don't understand oh, don't how the that. plane I fly a works. Lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I could not fucking find Baby Yoda, which I call bullshit on, because I was just following my feed and all these Facebook feed of watching all these Baby Yodas, and apparently there's no fucking Baby Yoda. <laughs> it's in the sh- it's in the fucking some Disney show. Yeah. So for people who don't know, Baby Yoda is a character who is not in fact Yoda, um, but looks like a infant version of Yoda, which is of course adorable. Uh, and it's not in the new Star Wars movie. It is in Mandalorian, which is a new show that just uh, released its first season on Disney+. Plus. Hold uh, on. What yeah. do you mean it's not Yoda? I'm stuck on that. You ha- you lost me at the baby Yoda's not Yoda. <laughs> what? Mandalorian takes place between Return of the Jedi and 
whatever episode seven is. So Yoda is, sorry, it's not Yoda. I'm trying not oh, to give not away spoilers. Yoda. Oh, so you you just mean it's not, it's a Yoda, but just not the Yoda. That's right. So when they say baby Yoda, it's just not the one, it's not our Yoda. Yeah, we we <laughs> don't even know. Advised Obi-Wan and Luke Skywalker. What his species is called. It's just there was once a Jedi named Yoda. And um, Okay, thank you. Yes. Now I'm not as upset. <laughs> I legit sat through the fucking, what is it, the credits because I thought maybe that little shit character was going to show up. <laughs> I don't know why I just said that as that it's a puppet probably. <laughs> like I'm Well, one thing that is awesome about Mandalorian, Kara, um and she is played by Gina Carano and she is a former shock trooper uh turned mercenary and she has the the body of you know what you might imagine is a, a super like ultimate fighter mm. you know what are these like cage matches where people yeah, yeah, like they don't MMA, have rules yeah martial arts she has that kind of like physicality and it, i'm seeing her you realize how rare it is to see a body like hers mm. uh just like really the terminator one they i'm forgetting the character's name linda linda mm. She actually has biceps that are bigger than my neck. Um, oh, never mind. That <laughs> so is not Linda not, Hamill. Not, not Linda Hamill. <laughs> I, I would think Linda Hamill is is closer to Ray, uh, mm. which is a character in episode nine. Yeah. I loved Rogue One. Loved Rogue One. Oh yeah, the the, the these add-ons are fantastic. Oh, Solo gosh. is great. Love. I haven't seen Solo yet. That's the one I haven't seen. I know. What the hell I just, is wrong with I you? I just saw your eyes. Are you roll. a Star You're Wars right. fan? I am, but that was the one. Because I'm wondering. I'm like, there's one that I missed. That's the one I missed. You, so you've I'm only watched up. ten movies. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Sarah, Chelsea. When you say that By the Sound is a community-invested podcast, what does that mean for me? Um, you're getting paid, Chelsea. I'm getting paid? Yeah, and so are Aisha and myself. We value people's time at By the Sound, and we know that rent isn't cheap here in Seattle. So what did our donors get out of this arrangement? Well, the more donations we receive, the more episodes we're able to produce. Their support also funds our activities to build our local By the Sound community. This is another way in which we're becoming a community-invested podcast. Cool beans. How can listeners donate? They can visit bythesound.net and click the donate button. That's bythesound.net. Or they can go directly to patreon.com slash bythesound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bythesound. So again, uh, Chelsea Alvarez couldn't be with us this week. She is... um, Embedded with uh, sailors, um, <laughs> the exact nature of their work is uh, classified. But I think we can be certain that uh, whatever is is going on, it's uh, pretty gay. Uh, it involves a shipping container, so I don't I don't know the specifics. That's all the rumor that I heard. It was something with shipping container, maybe rubber ducks. I don't know. Uh, yeah, a lot of lace. It's it's, <laughs> it's anyway. <laughs> Chelsea, you're in our thoughts and prayers. Uh, Always. And um, we're also doing this segment via uh, voice over internet protocol, which is what um, normal people call Skype. Uh, I, I want to say, like, I don't uh, endorse this whatsoever. It, it, it rattles my soul. 
to be engaging in this impersonal thing. Like I, I see who someone who is supposedly Asia. Yes, you know? it is me with my hair and my granny glasses, my reading glasses. I don't feel her her soul at all. You know, it it, it is wrong. Um, there is something. Yeah, it's true. So I, I don't condone what we're doing. Um, we're living in sin as far it's as not ideal. Know. It's not ideal, but you know what? Desperate times. We need, we need to t- see how we are doing. Um, what are you grateful for this week, Geisha? So I have uh, what may be an odd gratitude, but I, I'm grateful for it. So um, I'm on social media probably more than is healthy. Um, I appreciate mm. your medium post about Facebook, by the way, but apparently there's a, some kind of tiff between Bernie supporters and Elizabeth Warren supporters, which I'm ignoring completely. But what I'm grateful for is now there's folks who are posting kind of, can't we all get along, but really in a thoughtful way, like not in a, it's like, Hey, look, let's keep our eyes on the prize, which I know folks have been saying, but I just read a couple of posts today and what I appreciate is the attempt at thoughtfulness. I hope it lands. It's hard on social media because of the nature of social media. And I'm grateful. It was two different people who aren't necessarily connected, who both just kind of <laughs> called for calm. And I couldn't help but be like, I, and I actually did not, I'm proud of myself. I want to name that I did not look up what the hell it's all about. Because frankly, it's not that I don't care. It's that it's not going to serve me at all to look it up and try to figure out why Warren and Sanders supporters seem to be going at it because what the actual fuck. So, and I was grateful that there is in this imperfect medium that is kind of the new normal of humanity is social media, that there were nuanced responses to kind of tension that there's, there's the stakes are very high. So I appreciated that attempt at nuance, which I hope comes through. So that's what I'm grateful for, which is a weird gratitude because it kind of feels like it's apropos of nothing, but it also feels like, huh, maybe social media doesn't have to be shit. And I made a great pie this week, but that's has nothing to do with social media, Warren or Sanders, but I did make a great pie. Rhubarb strawberry with rosemary crust. I had some for breakfast, best pie I've ever made in my life. And and I'm apples, my favorite, but this one I could literally just see. And I know these could be fighting words for some, um, but uh, pie just beats the shit out of cake. Oh, oh, 7,000. That's not even a controversy. Like, no, (laughs) pie, there's no, it's not even a fair fight. (laughs) Like, it's like Muhammad Ali going after like a 10 year old who just started. I mean, cake is the 10 year old. Like, that's, (laughs) pie is clearly Muhammad Ali. So I'm with you on that. You and I, mm, that's why we're friends. I think it's because of the importance of butter and that, you know, I respect that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what cake doesn't usually have much to say about butter. You bring me a cake that respects butter, then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give it its due, but butter is just damn important. Well, a cake that respects butter is pie. Let's be real. So (laughs) let's just, let's just be real. So what about you, Sarah? What are you grateful for? I am grateful for our 14 um, now financial supporters on Patreon. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's where we're at right now is that um, we're bringing in enough money to pay for four guests per month, um, which is enough to uh, fund um, all of our, our guest appearances, which is awesome because that's a, a huge part of, you know, what's 
important about what we're trying to do is value people's um, the the time they give. But that that's all we're making. We're we're not yet covering payments made to the host or the monthly payments for uh, online uh, web hosting and distribution and the business expenses involved with it. We haven't covered any of the equipment that we bought, um, that I bought. I mean, basically with each episode, I am going further into debt. Um, but thanks to those 14 listeners, um, the first priority, uh, of the podcast, which is paying our guest is now covered. Yay. Um, so I'm, uh, grateful for that. I'm grateful for them. Um, I'm, grateful for the community that is growing in our, our Facebook group around this and with our guests. And I think any reasonable expectation of, of where we might be at this point, seven episodes in, uh, has, has been met. Um, and yeah, thanks guys. Uh, because here's the thing. The reason I'm bringing this up today is this. The interview on today's show is not fun and it is not something god how how long was it i think it 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 was probably about 40 minutes um of uh talking about um issues of uh community conflict and domestic violence and uh, accountability and restorative justice like those aren't um it, it's hard to get Casper mattresses to sign on to that, you know? Yeah. So once one of the great things about the podcast is we put that out in the world and then we're going to have uh, a description of it. And so when people search those terms, whether they're in Seattle or not, they're going to come up with Shannon Perez Darby and her brilliant insights into all of that and her, her eloquent descriptions and that, is being funded by our supporters. So thank you. Thank you, all y'all. Yeah, thank you. Spread the word. Well, we're doing something not many people are in the depth we're doing it. I mean, what I'm hearing from folks who are listening is um, it feels so real. <laughs> More than one person who lives in the Seattle area said it's it's thawing the Seattle freeze. <laughs> oh. More than one person said that. So they don't. one person said, I don't feel so alone. So... That's beautiful. So we're, we're putting out good stuff out there. And my friend, Christina Rivera, who I want to give a shout out to, called from Virginia. She's a member from Virginia and said, please tell Sarah and Chelsea, I love what you're doing. I want you to know that I love it. And so um, we're doing something important. So thank, thank you, Sarah Mays. This is your um, gem of a brainchild. And I'm just grateful to be a part of it. So I just wanted to be big in Virginia. Check mission accomplished. <laughs> so thanks to all of our listeners in Virginia and Seattle and um, our uh, soldiers and sailors at sea um, and Chelsea and uh, her, her, her new friends. So uh, this has been By the Sound, your community invested podcast. Ciao. By the Sound is an Ahoy Hoy Media production. Ahoy Hoy.